the mob closed in. Grebo, struggling against a morphogenic field swinging wildly between species, punched the first man in the face with a hand and clawed the shirt off another man with something more like a giant paw. Oh, sure! Twenty hands grabbed him. And then, in the melee and the darkness, twenty hands were holding just cloth and emptiness. Vengeful boots connected with nothing more than air. Clubs that had been swung at a snarling face whirled through empty space and returned to hit their owner on the ear. Quite unnoticed in the scrum, a flat-eared bullet of grey fur shot out from between the scuffling legs. The kicking and punching stopped only when it became apparent that all the mob was attacking was itself. And since the IQ of a mob is the IQ of its most stupid member divided by the number of mobsters, it was never very clear to anyone what had happened. Obviously, they'd closed in on the ghost, and he certainly couldn't have escaped. All that was left was a mask and some torn clothing. So, the mob reasoned, he must have ended up in the river, and good riddance too. Happy in the knowledge of a job well done, they adjourned to the nearest pub. This left Sergeant Count Detritus and Corporal the Count de Nobby Nobs, who lurched to the middle of the bridge and regarded the few scraps of cloth. Commander Vimes isn't... "'Isn't going to like this,' said Detritus. "'You know he likes prisoners to be alive.' "'Yeah, but this one would have been hung anyway,' said Nobby, who was trying to stand upright. "'This way was just a bit more <laughs> democratic. "'A great saving in terms of rope, not to mention wear and tear on locks and keys.' Detritus scratched his head. "'Shouldn't there be some blood?' he ventured. Nobby gave him a sour look. He couldn't have got away, he said, so don't go asking questions like that. Only, if humans is hit hard enough, they leaks all over the place, said Detritus. Nobby sighed. That was the calibre of people you got in the watch these days. They had to make a mystery of things. In days gone by, when it had been just the old gang and an unofficial policy of lazy fare, they'd have said a heartfelt, well done lads, to the vigilantes and turned in early. But now old Vimes had been promoted to commander, he seemed to be enrolling people who asked questions all the time. It was even affecting Detritus, considered by other trolls to be as dim as a dead glowworm. Detritus reached down and picked up an eye patch. What do you think of that, then? said Nobby scornfully. You think he turned into a bat and flew away? Eh? I do not think that, cos it is inconsistent. With modern policing, said Detritus. Well, I think, said Nobby, that when you have ruled out the impossible, what is left, however improbable, ain't worth hanging around on a cold night wondering about when you could be getting on the outside of a big drink. Come on, I want to try a leg of the elephant that bit me. Was that irony? That was metaphor. Detritus, uneasy in what was technically his mind, prodded at the torn pieces of clothing. Something brushed against his leg. It was a cat. It had tattered ears, one good eye, and a face like a fist with fur on it. Hello, little cat, said Detritus. The cat stretched and grinned. Get lost, copper. Detritus blinked. There are no such things as troll cats, and Detritus had never seen a cat before he'd arrived in Ankh-Morpork and discovered that they were very, very hard to eat and he'd never heard of them talking. 
On the other hand, he was very much aware of his reputation as the most stupid person in the city, and he wasn't going to draw attention to a talking cat if it were going to turn out that everybody except him knew that they talked all the time. In the gutter, a few feet away, there was something white. He picked it up carefully. It looked like the mask the ghost had worn. This was probably a clue. He waved it urgently. Hey, Nobby! Thank you. Something dipped through the darkness, snatched the mask from the troll's hand, and soared into the night. Corporal Nobbs turned around. Yes, he said. Er, uh, how big are birds, normally? Oh, blimey, I don't know. Some are small, some are big, who cares? Detritus sucked his finger. Oh, no reason, he said. I am far too smart to be taken in by perfectly normal things. Something squelched underfoot. It's pretty damp down here, Walter, said Nanny, and the air was stale and heavy and seemed to be squeezing the light from the torch. There was a dark edge to the flame. Not far now, Mrs. Ogg. Keys jingled in the darkness and some hinges creaked. I found this, Mrs. Ogg. It's the ghost's secret cave. Secret cave, eh? You've got to shut your eyes. You've got to shut your eyes, said Walter urgently. Nanny did so, but to her shame, kept a grip on the torch just in case. She said, And is the ghost in there, Walter? No. There was the rattle of a matchbox and some scuffling, and then, You can open them now, Mrs. Ogg. Nanny did so. Colour and light blurred and then swam into focus, first in her eyes and then eventually in her brain. Oh, my, she murmured. Oh, my, my. There were candles, the big flat ones used to illuminate the stage, floating in shallow bowls. The light they gave was soft and it rippled over the room like the soul of water. It glinted off the beak of a huge swan. It glittered in the eye of a vast, sagging dragon. Nanny Og turned slowly. Her experience of opera had not been a lengthy one, but witches pick things up quickly, and there was the winged helmet worn by Hildebrunn in the ring of the Nibelungingung, and here was the striped pole from the barber of Pseudopolis, and there was the pantomime horse with the humorous trapdoor from the enchanted piccolo, and here, here, was opera, all piled in a heap. Once the eye had taken it all in, it had time to notice the peeling paint and rotting plaster and the general air of gentle mouldering. The decrepit props and threadbare costumes had been dumped in here because people didn't want them anywhere else. But someone did want them here. After the eye had seen the ruin, then there was time for it to see the little patches of recent repair, the careful areas of fresh paint. There was something like a desk in the tiny area of floor not occupied by the props, and then Nanny realised that it had a keyboard and a stool, and there were neat piles of paper on top of it. Walter was watching her with a big, proud grin. Nanny ambled over to the thing. It's a harmonium, ain't it? A tiny organ. That's right, Mrs Ogg. Nanny picked up one of the sheaves of paper. Her lips moved as she read the meticulous copperplate writing. An opera about cats, she said. Never heard of an opera about cats. She thought for a moment and then added to herself, But why not? It's a damn good idea. The lives of cats are just like operas when you come to think about it. She leafed through the other piles. Guys and Trolls. Hubwood's side story. Miserable Les, who's he? 
seven dwarfs for seven other dwarfs? What are all these, Walter? She sat down on the stool and pressed a few of the cracked yellow keys, which moved with an audible creak. There were a couple of large pedals under the harmonium. You pedalled these, and that worked the bellows, and these spongy keys produced something which was to organ music what poot was to cursing. So this was where Walter, where the ghost sat, thought Nanny, down under the stage, among the discarded wreckage of old performances, down under the huge windowless room where night after night music and songs and rampant emotion echoed back and forth and never escaped or entirely died away. The ghost worked down here with a mind as open as a well and it filled up with opera. Opera went in at the ears and something else came out of the mind. Nanny pumped the pedals a few times. Air hissed from inefficient seams. She tried a few notes. They were reedy, but, she considered, sometimes the old lie was true and size really did not matter. It really was what you did with it that counted. Walter watched her expectantly. She took down another wad of paper and peered at the first page, but Walter leaned over and snatched at the script. That one's not finished, Mrs. Zog. The opera house was still in uproar. Half the audience had gone outside and the other half was hanging around in case further interesting events were going to transpire. The orchestra was in a huddle in the pit, preparing its request for a special being upset by a ghost allowance. The curtains were closed. Some of the chorus had stayed on stage, others had hurried off to take part in the chase. The air had the excited electric feel it gets when normal civilised life is temporarily short-circuited. Agnes bounced frantically from rumour to rumour. The ghost had been caught and it was Walter Plinge. The ghost had been caught by Walter Plinge. The ghost had been caught by someone else. The ghost had escaped. The ghost was dead. There were arguments breaking out everywhere. I still can't believe it was Walter. I mean, good grief, Walter. What about the show? We can't just stop. You never stop the show, not even if someone dies. Oh, we have stopped when people died. Yes, but only as long as it took to get the body off stage. Agnes stepped back into the wings and trod on something. Sorry, she said automatically. It was only my foot, said Granny Weatherwax. So, how is life in the big city, Agnes Knit? Agnes turned. Oh... Hello, Granny, she mumbled. And I'm not Agnes here, thank you, she added, a shade more defiantly. It's a good job, is it, being someone else's voice? I'm doing what I want to do, said Agnes. She drew herself up to her full width. And you can't stop me. But you ain't part of it, are you, said Granny conversationally. You try, but you always find yourself watching yourself watching people, eh? Never quite believing anything, thinking the wrong thoughts. Shut up. Eh, <laughs> heh. Thought so. I have no intention of becoming a witch, thank you very much. Now, don't go getting upset just because you know it's going to happen. A witch you're going to be, because a witch you are. And if you turn your back on him now, then I don't know what's going to happen to Walter Plinge. He's not dead. No? Agnes hesitated. I knew he was the ghost, she began, but then I saw he couldn't be. Ah, said Granny. Believed the evidence of your own eyes, did you? <laughs> in a place like this? One of the stagehands just told me they chased him up onto the roof and then down into the street and beat him to death. Ah, oh, well, said Granny, you'll never get anywhere if you believe what you hear. What do you know? What do you mean, what do I know? Don't try cleverness on me, miss. Agnes looked at Granny's expression and knew when to fold. 
I know he's the ghost, she said. Right, but I can see that he isn't. Yes, and I know, well, I'm pretty sure, he doesn't mean any harm. Good, well done. Walter might not know his right from his left, but he does know his right from his wrong. Granny rubbed her hands together. Well, we're already home and looking for a clean towel, eh? What? You haven't solved anything? Course we have. We know that it wasn't Walter what done the murders, so now we just have to find out who it was. Easy. Where's Walter now? Nanny's got him somewhere. She's all by herself. I told you she's got Walter. I meant, well, he's a bit strange. Only where it shows. Agnes sighed and started to say that it wasn't her problem and realised it was useless even to try. The knowledge sat like a smug intruder in her mind. Whatever it was, it was her problem. All right, she said. I'll help you if I can because I'm here, but afterwards that's it. Afterwards you'll leave me alone. Promise? Certainly. Well, all right then. Agnes stopped. Oh, no, she said. That was too easy. I don't trust you. Don't trust me, said Granny. You're saying you don't trust me? Yes, I don't. You'll find a way to wriggle around it. I never wriggle, said Granny. It's Nanny Og who thinks we ought to have a third witch. I reckon life's difficult enough without some girl cluttering up the place just because she thinks she looks good in a pointy hat. There was a pause. Then Agnes said, I'm not falling for that one either. It's where you say I'm too stupid to be a witch and I say, oh no, I'm not, and you end up winning again. I'd rather be someone else's voice than some old witch with no friends and having everyone frightened of me and being nothing more than just a bit cleverer than other people and not doing any real magic at all. Granny put her head on one side. Seems to me you're so sharp you might cut yourself, she said. All right, when it's all over, I'll let you go your own way. I won't stop you. Now, show me the way to Mr Bucket's office. Nanny smiled her jolly wrinkled old apple smile. Now you just hand it over, Walter, she said. No harm in letting me see it, is there? Not old Nanny. Can't see it till it's finished. Well now, said Nanny, hating herself for dropping the atom bomb, I'm sure your mum wouldn't want you to hear that you've been a bad boy, would she? Expressions floated over Walter's waxen features as he struggled with several ideas at once. Finally, Without a word, he thrust the bundle at her, his arms trembling with tension. There's a good boy, said Nanny. She glanced at the first few pages and then moved them nearer to the light. Hmm. She treedled the harmonium for a while and played a few notes with her left hand. They represented most of the musical notes she knew how to read. It was a very simple little theme, such as might be picked out on the keyboard with one finger. Hey. Her lips moved as she read the narrative. Well now, Walter, she said, isn't this a sort of opera about a ghost who lives in an opera house? She turned a page. Very smart and debonair he is. Oh, he's got a secret cave, I see. She played another short riff. Catchy music, too. She read on, occasionally saying things like, Well, well, and Lorks. Every now and again, she'd give Walter an appraising look. I wonder why the ghost wrote this, Walter, she said after a while. Quiet sort of chap, ain't he? Put it all into his music? Walter stared at his feet. 
There's going to be a lot of trouble, Mrs. Og. Oh, me and Granny will sort it all out, said Nanny. It's wrong to tell lies, said Walter. Probably, said Nanny, who'd never let it worry her up to now. It wouldn't be right for our mum to lose her job, Mrs. Og. It wouldn't be right, no. The feeling drifted over Nanny that Walter was trying to put across some sort of message. Er, uh, what sort of lies would it be wrong to tell, Walter? Walter's eyes bulged. Lies about things you see, Mrs. Og, even if you did see them. Nanny thought it was probably time to present the Oggish point of view. It's all right to tell lies if you don't think lies, she said. He said our mum would lose our job and I'd be locked up if I said, Mrs. Og. Did he? Which he was he? The ghost, Mrs. Og. I reckon Granny ought to have a good look at you, Walter, said Nanny. I reckon your mind's all tangled up like a ball of string what's been dropped. She peddled the harmonium thoughtfully. Was it the ghost that wrote all this music, Walter? It's wrong to tell lies about the room with the sacks in it, Mrs. Og. Ah, thought Nanny, that'd be down here, would it? He said I wasn't to tell anyone. Who did? The ghost, Mrs. Og. But you're the... Nanny began, and then tried another way. Ah, but I ain't anyone, she said. Anyway, if you was to go to this room with the sacks and I was to follow you, that wouldn't be telling anyone, would it? It wouldn't be your fault if some old woman followed you, would it? Walter's face was an agony of indecision, but erratic though his thinking might have been, there was no match for Nanny Ogg's meretricious duplicity. He was up against a mind that regarded truth as a reference point, but certainly not as a shackle. Nanny Ogg could think her way through a corkscrew in a tornado without touching the sides. Anyway, it's all right if it's me, she added for good measure. In fact, he probably meant to say, except for Mrs. Ogg, only he forgot. Slowly, Walter reached out and picked up a candle. Without saying a word, he walked out of the door and into the damp darkness of the cellars. Nanny Og followed him, her boots making squelching noises in the mud. It didn't seem like much of a distance. As far as Nanny could work out, they were no longer under the opera house, but it was hard to be sure. Their shadows danced around them and they walked through other rooms, even more dark and dripping than the ones they'd been in. Walter stopped in front of a pile of timber that glistened with rot and pulled a few of the spongy planks aside. There were some sacks neatly piled. Nanny kicked one and it broke. In the flickering candlelight all that she could really see were sparkles of light as the cascade poured out, but there was no mistaking the gentle metallic scraping of lots of money. Lots and lots of money. Enough money to suggest very clearly that it belonged to either a thief or a publisher, and there didn't seem to be any books around. What's this, Walter? It's the ghost's money, Mrs. Og. There was a square hole in the opposite corner of the room. Water glinted a few inches below. Beside the hole were half a dozen containers of various sorts, old biscuit tins, broken bowls and the like. There was a stick or possibly a dead shrub in each one. And those, Walter, what are those? Rose bushes, Mrs. Og. Down here? But nothing could grow. Nanny stopped. She squelched over to the pots. 
They'd been filled with muck scraped from the floor. The dead stems glistened with slime. Nothing could grow down here, of course. There was no light. Everything that grew needed something else to feed on. And she moved the candle closer and sniffed the fragrance. Yes, it was subtle, but it was there. Roses in darkness. Well, my word, Walter Plinge, she said. Always one for the surprises you are. Books were piled on Mr Bucket's desk. What you're doing is wrong, Granny Weatherwax, said Agnes from the doorway. Granny glanced up. Wrong as living other people's lives for them, she said. As a matter of fact, there's something even worse than that, which is living other people's lives for yourself. That kind of wrong? Agnes said nothing. Granny Weatherwax couldn't know. Granny turned back to the books. Anyway, this only looks wrong. Appearances is deceiving. You just pay attention to watching the corridor, madam. She riffled through the bits of torn envelope and scribbled notes that seemed to be the opera house's equivalent of proper accounts. It was a mess. In fact, it was more than a mess. It was far too much of a mess to be a real mess, because a real mess has occasional bits of coherence, bits of what might be called random order. Rather, it was the kind of erratic mess that suggested that someone had set out to be messy. Take the account books. They were full of tiny rows and columns, but someone hadn't thought it worthwhile to invest in lined paper and had handwriting that wandered a bit. There were forty rows on the left-hand side, but only thirty-six by the time they reached the other side of the page. It was hard to spot because of the way your eyes watered. "'What are you doing?' said Agnes, tearing her gaze away from the corridor. "'Amazing!' said Granny. "'Some things he's entered twice, and I reckon there's a page here where someone's added up the month and taken away the time of day.' I thought you didn't like books, said Agnes. I don't, said Granny, turning a page. They can look you right in the face and still lie. How many fiddle players are there in the band? I think there are nine violinists in the orchestra. The correction appeared to pass unnoticed. Well, there's a thing, said Granny, without moving her head. Seems that twelve of them are drawing wages, but three of them is over the page so you mightn't notice. She looked up and rubbed her hands happily. Unless you've got a good memory, that is. She ran a skinny finger down another erratic column. What's a flying ratchet? I don't know. It says here, repairs to flying ratchet, new springs for rotation cog assembly and making good. Hundred and sixty dollars and sixty-three pence. Huh. She licked her finger and tried another page. Even Nanny ain't this bad at numbers she said. To be this bad at numbers, you've got to be good. Whew. No wonder this place never makes any money. You might as well try to fill a sieve. Agnes darted into the room. There's someone coming. Granny got up and blew out the lamp. You get behind the curtains, she commanded. What are you going to do? Oh, uh, I'll just have to make myself inconspicuous. Agnes hurried across to the big window and turned to look at Granny, who was standing by the fireplace. The old witch faded. She didn't disappear, she merely slid into the background. An arm gradually became part of the mantelpiece, a fold of her dress was a piece of shadow, an elbow became the top of the chair behind her. Her face became one with a vase of faded flowers. She was still there, like the old woman in the puzzle picture they sometimes printed in the almanac, where you could see the old woman or the young girl, but not both at once, because one was made of the shadows of the other. Granny Weatherwax was standing by the fireplace, but you could see her only if you knew she was there. Agnes blinked, and there were just the shadows and chair and the fire. The door opened.
she ducked behind the curtains, feeling as conspicuous as a strawberry in a stew, certain that the sound of her heart would give her away. The door shut, carefully, with barely a click. Footsteps crossed the floor. A wooden scraping noise might have been a chair being moved slightly. A scratch and a hiss were the sound of a match striking. A clink was the glass of the lamp being lifted. All noise ceased. Agnes crouched, every muscle suddenly screaming with the strain. The lamp hadn't been lit. She'd have seen the light around the curtain. Someone out there was making no noise. Someone out there was suddenly suspicious. A floorboard squeaked very slowly as someone shifted their weight. She felt as if she was going to scream or burst with the effort of silence. The handle of the window behind her, a mere point of pressure a moment ago, was trying seriously to become part of her life. Her mouth was so dry that she knew it would creak like a hinge if she dared to swallow. It couldn't be anyone who had a right to be here. People who had a right to be in places walked around noisily. The handle was getting really personal. Try to think of something else. The curtain moved. Someone was standing on the other side of it. If her throat weren't so arid, she might be able to scream. She could feel the presence through the cloth. Any moment now, someone was going to twitch the curtain aside. She leapt, or as close to a leap as was feasible. It was a kind of vertical lumber, billowing the curtain aside, colliding with a slim body behind it, and ending on the floor in a tangle of limbs and ripping velvet. She gulped air and pressed down on the squirming bundle below her. I'll scream, she said, and if I do, your eardrums will come down your nose. The writhing stopped. <laughs> said a muffled voice. Above her, the curtain rail sagged at one end, and the brass rings, one at a time, spun towards the floor. Nanny went back to the sacks. Each one bulged with round, hard shapes that clinked gently under her questing finger. This is a lot of money, Walter, she said carefully. Yes, Mrs. Ogg. Nanny lost track of money fairly easily, although this didn't mean the subject didn't interest her. It was just that, beyond a certain point, it became dreamlike. All she could be sure of was that the amount in front of her would make anyone's drawers drop. I suppose, she said, that if I was to ask you how it had got here, you'd say it was the ghost, yes? Like the roses. Yes, Mrs. Ogg. She gave him a worried look. You'll be all right down here, will you? She said. You'll sit quiet. I reckon I need to talk to some people. Where's my mum, Mrs. Ogg? She's having a nice sleep, Walter. Walter seemed satisfied with this. You'll sit quiet in your in, in that room, will you? Yes, Mrs. Ogg. There's a good boy. She glanced at the money bags again. Money was trouble. Agnes sat back. Andre raised himself on his elbows and pulled the curtain off his face. What the hell were you doing there? he said. I was... What do you mean, what was I doing there? You were creeping around. You were hiding behind the curtain, said Andre, getting to his feet and fumbling for the matches again. Next time you blow out a lamp, remember it'll still be warm. We were on important business. The lamp glowed. Andre turned. We, he said. Agnes nodded and looked across at Granny. The witch hadn't moved, although it took a deliberate effort of will to focus on her among the shapes and shadows. Andre picked up the lamp and stepped forward. The shadows shifted. Well, he said. 
Agnes strode across the room and waved a hand in the air. There was the chair back, there was the vase, there was nothing else. But she was there. A ghost, eh? said Andre sarcastically. Agnes backed away. There is something about the light of a lamp held lower than someone's face. The shadows are wrong. They fall into unfortunate places. Teeth seem more prominent. Agnes came to realise that she was alone in a room in suspicious circumstances with a man whose face suddenly looked a lot more unpleasant than it had before. I suggest, he said, that you get back to the stage right now, yes? That would be the very best thing you could do, and don't meddle in things that don't concern you. You've done too much as it is. The fear hadn't drained out of Agnes, but it had found a space in which to metamorphose into anger. I don't have to put up with that. For all I know, you might be the ghost. Really? I was told that Walter Plinch was the ghost, said Andre. How many people did you tell? And now it turns out that he's dead. No, he's not. It was out before she could stop it. She'd said it merely to wipe the sneer off his face. This happened. But the expression that replaced it was no improvement. A floorboard creaked. They both turned. There was a hat stand in the corner next to a bookcase. There were a few coats and scarves hanging from it. It was surely only the way that the shadows fell that made it look, from this angle, like an old woman. Or, damn floors, said Granny, fading into the foreground. She stepped away from the coats. As Agnes said later, it wasn't as though she'd been invisible. She'd simply become part of the scenery until she put herself forward again. She was there, but not there. She didn't stand out at all. She was as unnoticeable as the very best of butlers. How did you get in? said Andre. I looked all round the room. Seeing is believing, said Granny calmly. Of course, the trouble is that believing is also seeing. And there's been too much of that around here lately. Now, I know you ain't the ghost, so what are you? To be sneaking around in places where you shouldn't be. I could ask you the same question. Me? I'm a witch. And I'm pretty good at it. She's uh, uh, from Lancre, where I come from. Agnes mumbled, trying to look at her feet. Oh, not the one who wrote the book, said Andre. I've heard people talking about... No, I'm much worse than her, understand? She is, mumbled Agnes. Andre gave Granny a long look, like a man weighing up his chances. He must have decided that they were bobbing along the ceiling. I hang around in dark places looking for trouble, he said. Really? There's a nasty name for people like that, snapped Granny. Yes, said Andre. It's policemen. Nanny Og climbed out of the cellars, rubbing her chin thoughtfully. Musicians and singers were still milling around, uncertain about what was going to happen next. The ghost had had the decency to be chased and killed during the interval. In theory, that meant there was no reason why there shouldn't be a third act, as soon as Herr Trubelmacher had scoured the nearby pubs and dragged the orchestra back. The show must go on. Yes, she thought, it has to go on. It's like the build-up to a thunderstorm. No, it's more like making love. Yes, that was a far more oggish metaphor. You put everything you've got into it, so sooner or later there's a point where it's got to go on, because you can't imagine stopping. The stage manager could dock a couple of dollars from their wages and they'd still go on, and everyone knew it, and they would still go on. She reached a ladder and climbed slowly into the flies. She hadn't been certain. She needed to be certain now. The fly loft was empty. She walked carefully along the catwalk until she was over the auditorium. 
the buzz of the audience came through the ceiling beneath her, slightly muffled. Light shone up at the point where the thick cable for the chandelier disappeared into the hole. She stepped out over the creaking trapdoor and peered down. Terrific heat almost frizzled her hair. A few yards below her, hundreds of candles were burning. Dreadful if that lot fell down, she said quietly. I expect this place would go up like a haystack. She let her gaze travel up and up the cable, to the point at just about waist height, where it was half cut through. You'd never see it if you weren't expecting to find it. Then her gaze dropped again and moved across the gloomy, dusty floor until it found something half-hidden in the dust. Behind her, a shadow among the shadows rose to its feet, balanced itself carefully and started to run. I knows about policemen, said Granny. They've got big helmets and big feet, and you can see them a mile off. There's a couple lurching around backstage. Anyone can see their policemen. You don't look like one. She turned the badge over and over in her hands. I ain't happy with the idea of secret policemen, she said. Why do you need secret policemen? Because, said Andre, sometimes you have secret criminals. Granny almost smiled. That's a fact, she said. She peered at the small engraving on the back of the badge. Says here, Cable Street Particulars. There aren't many of us, said Andre. We've only just started. Commander Vimes said that since we can't do anything about the Thieves' Guild and the Assassin's Guild, we'd better look for other crimes, hidden crimes, that need watchmen with different skills. And I can play the piano quite well. What kind of skills have that troll and that dwarf got, said Granny. Seems to me the only thing they're really good at is standing around looking obvious and stupid. Ah, yes. Right. And they didn't even need much training, said Andre. Commander Vimes says that they're the most obvious policemen anyone could think of. Incidentally, Corporal Nobbs has got some papers to prove he's a human being. Forged? I don't think so. Granny Weatherwax put her head on one side. If your house was on fire, what's the first thing you'd take out of it? Oh, Granny, Agnes began. Hmm. Who set fire to it, said Andre. You're a policeman, right enough. Granny handed him his badge. You come to arrest poor Walter, she said. I know he didn't murder Dr Undershaft. I was watching him. He was trying to unblock the privies all afternoon. I've had proof that Walter isn't the ghost, said Agnes. I was almost sure it was Selzella, said Andre. I know he creeps off to the cellars sometimes and I'm sure he's stealing money, but the ghost has been seen when Salzella is perfectly visible. So now I think... Think? Think? said Granny. Someone thinking around here at last? How do you recognise the ghost, Mr Policeman? Well, he's got a mask on. Really? Now, say it again and listen to what you say. Good grief, you can recognise him because he's got a mask on. You recognise him because you don't know who he is? Life isn't neat. Whoever said there's only one ghost? <laughs>